0: Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in just a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every week to explore a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. We are glad to have you with us.
1: Praise the
2: Lord.
0: we are. Uh, And I've got no clever intro except for to say uh, I'm glad to be speaking to the two of you again um, uh, in what has become a way to demarcate these long, long weeks. I I shared a meme on uh, social media, Facebook thing that someone had sent me of a picture of, you know, Alexander and the no good, very bad, awful Mm. day. And it, I think it says, like, uh, a new new classic, Alexander and the day that blended into every other day, like some Kafkaesque nightmare with no merciful end in sight. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> um, so good. Let me ask you this, though. A lot of people out there are talking about things that are new during this time, stuff that they're, you know, you know... Uh, I guess hobbies they're taking up, or, and I know we've we've avoided the, our last episode was so dark that I felt like maybe we could talk about something slightly lighter. But is there is, is there lighter? any is this lighter? I don't know. Is there anything new that you're taking up or that you want to share, or any commentary you want to give on it? Because I, I found we're uh, we're going making our way through all the Jane Austen movies, and that that sounds like I something know. RJ would do.
2: Yes, it would. It would. That's but, lovely.
0: Uh, I mean I'd watched Pride and Prejudice, the the great BBC Colin Firth, Jennifer Ailey version ages ago, but so sort to of re watch that with my sons was really fun. And my wife Were they then, into it? We just watched Sense and Sensibility last night. I mean, it requires a lot of like pausing and being like, "Well, this is what's going on here, and this is why this person's upset is because this person's going to be disinherited and if this doesn't happen." And they're like, "What's an inheritance?" So it ends up being this whole long, you know, uh, history lesson almost. And and uh, but that that is such a perfect work of art, I think. And then we watched Sense and Sensibility last night, the Emma Thompson one, and tonight's Mansfield Park. So that sounds super highfalutin. That's one of the one of the more good for you. That's awesome. uh, One of the guess new things we've been doing. Um, What about you guys? Anything new?
1: So one thing that I have taken to doing—it's so funny—for years since my daughter really got into books, I have in my brain made fun of her, never to her face, because she only ever wants to read books about like mermaid cat princesses. And I found <laughs> since quarantine. So, so gendered. So gendered. Yeah, I mean, she like she ran into the book fair. One of my friends took her, ran into the book fair and loudly proclaimed, I only want the books that come with jewelry. I mean, like, we can't fix that, you know? But um, but I'm only reading books about princesses right now. Wow. Um, myself, which I've like, they're like historical fiction, but I've read about I'm reading about Anne Boleyn, I read about um uh, one of the Romanovs. I'm, and literally, you make me feel so much better because I was trying to explain to my son who the Romanovs were a lot yesterday. And I was like, I can't, why am I trying to do this to him? But um, I realized it's because they're basically all in quarantine their whole lives. Right? Like, mm-hmm. it's like, and then we yes. were in the winter castle for six months. I'm <laughs> like, it just makes you feel less alone. I don't know. Um, I do want to say, Dave and I have talked a little bit about this, but it is interesting to me that everyone's like trying new things and it's like crafts. And I just want to suggest therapy <laughs> because one thing I've noticed is, you know, I talk, I do a lot of pastoral care in my job as a college chaplain. And the people who are healthiest right now are the ones who are having a regular check-in with a therapist. And it's a great time to try it. Um, also because all those barriers, like getting into an office and all that's kind of gone and thanks to the modern age of the internet, there's like myriad ways to get therapy that are like affordable. So I just want to like toss that out there as a, I don't know, a little idea. Like if you're feeling really low right now, that's still an option. Therapy still an option. I mean, there are things that, you know, learning to knit won't fix, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, along those lines,
2: definitely cooking. You know, really? which is not something I, I necessarily feel like I have time for. You know, we probably like you guys. Our family has a regular rotation of about five to ten meals that yep. we just make. Yep. you know, add an infinitum, which is then punctuated by the odd, you know, Chinese delivery or pizza or going out or something like that. Um, but now that we're not going out uh, we're like, let's try some new things. So like Jamie made the most amazing chicken, which turned into the most amazing chicken soup, which I made. And last night I made this orzo salad I was pretty excited about. And just going, like putting on my mask and going to the grocery store, what, which feels like an act of defiance, a a small act of defiance is all, is also just really, it's nice to get out and, and, uh, find some new things and think up some new meals. And, and also I don't feel, it's time I can sort of have to myself, like, you know, pour a little glass of wine, put on like a nature show, cook, sure. and not feel guilty about it, you know, because it's something I'm sort right. of doing for uh, for the family, mm-hmm. and that feels sort of wholesome and good. So yeah, I have been enjoying uh, cooking, which I, you know, when Jamie and I were first married, I pretty much did all the cooking, and that's kind of shifted over the years. So um, I'm enjoy- enjoying getting back to that.
0: Well, you heard it here first, everyone. If you want uh, something new to do, go to therapy first. That's the number one thing. And then next, you know, make some good meals and uh, watch some Jane Austen.
1: Tell your nine year old about the Romanovs.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Tell your nine year old. He's like, Dad, what did they do all day? They look like they're just drying lavender all day. I'm like, what? I think that's that was a principal it. concern. Yeah. They spent the morning uh you know gathering reeds to make baskets. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it feels a little bit like quarantine. Um <laughs> Well, speaking of other things we're doing during this strange time, uh, my oldest is really into sports and is very sad about the NBA mm. season and, and basically his own season's being canceled. Sure. And it it is a true, you know, um, it, it is a real, genuine grief to I think to any athletes or in the country. And one of the things that's popped up the last couple of weeks, if um, anyone who watches ESPN knows that there's something called the last dance which is a the most watched documentary of all time uh, on ESPN it's about michael jordan and it's about the the finals the sort of the, it's all this footage that has been in a locker somewhere and that Michael Jordan has been sitting on and that then is is he's finally allowed to be released about the the last season of the Bulls the great Chicago Bull team that was sort of marked my childhood certainly i think is the 97 98 season rj can correct us cuz we are taking a risk <laughs> by jumping sports sarah and i talking about this but and yet michael jordan is ubiquitous enough that he's not uh, this Figured, he figured heavily into everyone on planet Earth's life for some uh, portion of the 90s. Uh, the article, though, that appeared, which goes beyond just the particulars of basketball or even Jordan, was on The Ringer by Brian Phillips, who's a great writer, uh, called Michael Jordan, the Story versus Michael Jordan, the Man. Um, now, I'm going to skip a bunch of it, but here's, here's, here's parts of it. He says, no one had a better story than MJ did. By story, I mean the thread that strings the highs and lows of a career together into something meaningful, the deep-down basic shape through which you make sense of an athlete's time in the game. Jordan's story was so simple and so charismatic that it was almost the original template of the sports narrative itself. It was the closest approximation reality has ever offered us to the Ur story, and that is the after initial struggles... Uh, the player makes it to the big time, sinks big shots at big moments, uh, wins everything that can be won, shatters records, makes a fortune, and is universally beloved the end. How good was Jordan's story? It was so simple and so charismatic that later great athletes have had their own narratives judged by how closely they resemble his. LeBron James might or might not be able to beat MJ one-on-one, but his story will always be a muddle, relatively speaking. Michael Jordan never went to Miami, never lost in the finals, never tried to be a movie producer. Uh, More than that, Jordan's story was so simple and charismatic that there are great athletes whose stories are literally the struggle to recreate Michael Jordan's story. Now, we're talking about Michael Jordan is the embodiment of, of perfection and the ideal the the law incarnate as a uh, as a professional athlete they say kobe bryant was every bit as monomaniacally driven and ambitious as jordan but he was humanized by jordan's shadow made approachable by the fact that he was chasing an ideal rather than simply existing as one more than that jordan's story was so simple and charismatic that it convinced us to overlook all the places where it wasn't actually his story Every messy human element, every reverse decision, every hard to reconcile addendum, the comeback with the Wizards, the bullying, the baseball interlude, was either retrofitted to suit the needs of the larger narrative or erased. The gambling, and Michael Jordan is known as sort of a really compulsive gambler, got folded back into the classic sports virtue of competitiveness. The Wizards era had the bizarre quality of being forgotten even as it was taking place. But then uh, Phillips says, I think Michael Jordan spoke to a larger desire. Like any competitive pursuit, sports have always trafficked in the ideal. Here's the perfect body. Sculpt it. Here's the perfect victory. Write a poem about it in Greek. For the most part, though, the ideal remains an abstract concept. People chase perfection but don't reach it as a rule. In America in the 80s and 90s, though, we decided that we were going to see the ideal, the real thing, the source itself, in the flesh. You could write a thesis, probably, on the historical factors that went in constructing that determination. The point is, Michael Jordan gave it to us. He, he came so close to actually embodying the ideal athlete. He really did hit the buzzer beaters. He really did seem to move in a different and more beautiful way than other players. He really did seem to hang for an impossible extra beat in the air. That we were able to believe the ideal athlete existed. He was here. He was ours. He was the perfect fusion of capitalism and destiny. He was a living person. But the way we experienced him, he was a basketball player in approximately the same way as King Arthur was a political leader. Now, uh, I have my own history with Michael Jordan. I had Air Jordans and, you know, uh, I had the, the poster on the wall. And uh, he was just a, an absolute icon from start to finish when, uh, for anyone who lived in the 90s. But, uh, RJ, I would love to hear from you before moving on to what Miss Condon has to say.
2: Well, I feel like the the, the a lot of what he's... Mentioning the, the problems with Michael Jordan's legacy started actually started a while ago. Like I remember when he was inducted to the Hall of Fame, the Basketball Hall of Fame, he gave the strangest acceptance speech in which he basically thanked no one and used it as an opportunity to settle old scores and be as petty as he possibly could. And everyone was just like, what the heck was that? But his his coach Phil Jackson just was like, I love it. He's like, because that that's Michael Jordan. That is who Michael Jordan is. He is a hyper-competitive, sort of petty, vindictive person. You know, Steve Kerr, who's the current coach of the Golden State Warriors, tells a story about how uh, his son beat Michael Jordan's son in a game of one-on-one basketball when they were both like eight years old. And Jordan didn't talk to him for two months because he was so angry about it. Um, and and it for me, it just goes back to... We've talked about this a little bit on the podcast, but when you have people in culture who are really good at something, right, maybe they're really good musicians, they're really good artists, they're really good, um, you know, athletes, do we expect them to be good people too? Because Michael Jordan is just not a good person. He's, he's really just not a, you know, in, in sort of an earthly sense. And there's also something in there that when you have so single-mindedly dedicated yourself to perfection in one area, it is a sign of, a, I don't know, that there's some mental health thing there, you know, probably something to do with your parents, you know, like Tiger Woods' father um, just drove him into the ground to the point where he he was so controlling and focused on perfection that he needed the, this outlet, you know, of these, he had all sorts of sexual indiscretions and and ruined his, his marriage and ruined his career for like a decade or so. So I don't know what to say. You know, Charles Barkley said a long time ago, he was sort of an original basketball bad boy. And he once said, you know, I'm not, I'm not paid to be a role model. I'm not a role model. Now, ironically, Charles Barkley actually seems like a pretty good guy. Um, but I, I actually have not watched the the documentary. Even my son Jackson, who's a, a senior, he's like, "Are you going to watch this documentary?" I was like, "I don't know." He's like, and Jack was like, "I have no interest in watching that," which was interesting to me that he's not as enamored of the the MJ legacy. So there there is something in there. You know, we always talk about external, you know, moral externalities that when you are so. Focused on perfection, and that's what MJ was. You know, Larry Bird once said after a sixty-three point playoff performance against the Celtics, you know, that's just God disguised as Michael Jordan. You know, mm-hmm. you know your your dad, um, Dave, has talked about uh, the gospel being the integration of the. Sort of the boys in the basement, sort of the shadow self into the into the, the the true self. You know that we become sort of whole people because we know that our our dark side is is redeemed and kind of covered and forgiven. Um, but you see that you see this kind of splitting in these athletes with this public persona. You know, even Magic Johnson was the same way. There was Magic Johnson, and then there was Irvin Johnson, and he's even talked about his two different. Um, Persona, the the splitting that happens when you're so focused on perfection in a given area, um, but no, those are those are some of my thoughts, Sarah. Sarah, any thoughts on Michael Jordan? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I'm like, so how does that explain where Al? I mean, that's like really interesting to me. I mean, not to bring it back to my all-time favorite subject we've ever talked about, but it is interesting yes. like how people talk about how he's not split in that way, right? Yeah. yeah. But he's definitely focused and passionate about what he does. Yes. I don't know. It's interesting. I actually have watched this documentary really? because my husband – is a huge, huge Jordan Michael fan. Jordan fan. Josh loves basketball. He plays basketball every day with our son. I mean, he's loved it his whole life. I mean he grew up literally like on a like a like literally playing basketball, which he will remind our son of regularly when he complains about having to go outside and play basketball on like a gravel driveway, which is not an easy place to play <laughs> basketball. No. <laughs> um, so um I have watched it and RJ, it's really helpful actually to hear you talk about him because he is not a nice person. No, he's awful. In this, and it, it's really fascinating in this documentary. I mean, it, he's, I have to say, as someone who is like not into sports at all, it is beautiful to watch him play. I mean, I didn't grow up with sports, so I didn't watch him play when he was like at his height. And they'll show this footage that you're just like, my goodness, how is he managing that? Um, But it also – and it totally relates to, like, the darkest parts of me. It also is a little bit of his, like, place to be like, and this person did me wrong, and this person did me wrong. And there's, like, a whole lot of language, which is – like, I guess I'm just – old enough that it's still bracing to kind of see that like on like to just to see like a famous person be like f this person you're like okay dude but i mean he definitely like it's it it's it's an interesting documentary because um i and i i totally value why this this uh person or this piece because it doesn't it really doesn't delve into him not being a nice person as much as it does kind of reemphasize just how incredibly talented this individual was. So um, Mm. it's, I would be interested to see what you thought about it when you watched it, RJ. Well,
0: there's a, there's a really interesting correlation between perfection and love you know Mm -hmm. that uh and and i i I wonder if because weird al is so obviously imperfect in fact his whole thing is being this is
1: being imperfect
0: is being a ridiculous proxy you know it's like you insert weird al's idea of a michael jordan thing would be to insert himself as michael jordan and just that him his his existence is so ridiculous and but it's hard to uh love uh perfection you can admire it um but i've i've noticed though that people don't they've stopped talking about michael jordan the way they did when i grew up cuz you know I, I lived in europe for a while when i was a kid and the way that michael jordan was understood there and they you see it in this documentary was he was he was seen as an absolute superhero i mean he mm-hmm. was he was he was perfection because europeans were not that interested in american football but they all loved basketball and oh. uh huh. Super, in- and Jordan, and you do watch him, Sarah, you're right. You watch him and he never misses. <laughs>
1: it's know? amazing. And
0: he always, that kind of, um. he didn't believe he could lose. You know, he really had that compet- that bullying of his teammates. And it sounds like the esprit de corps wasn't always that great, even though they were winning so much. Uh, it was. It's interesting that we don't think of him with the same love that we do other more flawed characters. Characters and Phillips gets at it in this one paragraph. He says, The thing about the ideal in sports is that once the perfect story reaches its conclusion, the audience has no further need for the protagonist. Once he's no longer playing and winning, he's just a collection of individual traits like everyone else, and individual traits can only clutter the ideal. Shaquille O'Neal can go on illuminating his shackness for us in venues outside basketball, but when Michael Jordan shows his personality, it's inconvenient. That's why the crying Jordan meme, you know, this was all mm-hmm. over the internet for a long time of Michael Jordan crying. And like, then people would just write ridiculous things. It was funny and also jarring in a way that a crying Kareem Abdul Jabbar meme wouldn't have been. It showed the ideal totally swamped by messy human weakness. It reduced the ideal to a state of tear-stained puffiness. Uh, Show a normal person overwhelmed by tears and people will respond with sympathy or will feel moved. Show the ideal in tears and the response is a kind of startled mockery. And, uh, that is always been in my mind when it comes to Jordan and that we don't remember him with quite the same love, uh, because possibly because he stands as such a condemnation as over the world, although it was, it was, it was a delight to watch him play and just for the beauty of the game, uh, but again, I, I also th- note that thing. If you achieve total justification and enoughness in this one area, um, it doesn't. It's not going to silence the voices. Clearly, he's got to use this documentary to uh, relitigate or uh, to to uh, adjudicate all of these past gripes and to and to reclaim his perfection. Which, of course, the moment you start to step back into the courtroom, you start to look guilty. Right?
1: Sure.
2: It's not a good look as you were talking it just it, it strikes me too how much um and how often beauty flows from pain um but that there does seem to be a qualitative difference between beauty that flows from pain that has sort of not been dealt with versus beauty that flows from pain which is just raging you know that there's something of michael dorn there's a pain within him that continues to rage, and it pushed him to these unbelievable heights, but it's different, you know, um, we talked about the Holy Trinity, was it last week or the week before, you know, Weird Al Dolly Parton and Mr. Rogers, um, who all clearly have their pain, but but they've thought about it, and they've worked it through, and they've dealt with it, and that that pain has become a source of healing for other people in a way that, you know, that, that um, I don't know, Michael Jordan sort of can't do, but but among sports figures, you know, I've talked about um, Andre Agassi before, and I find him endlessly fascinating because he also had a, a father, a Iranian-American, former Olympic weightlifter father who just pushed him and pushed him and pushed him and pushed him and pushed him. And, pushed him. And, and Agassi hated tennis. He hated it, but he was good at it. But he finally hated it so much that he had, had to quit for a little while. He quit for like two years. And then he came back... He actually had like two or three comebacks, but when he came back, he was better than he was before, but he was also more integrated because he had dealt with his past and his pain. Um, and and he and he does amazing things in the Las Vegas community for like underprivileged kids. He has a school and he's just donated tens of millions of dollars, but he's not the kind of guy who needs to be in the spotlight. You know, he's found some level of of peace with himself in spite of his pain. And, and he's still it carried him to great athletic heights and success. Like he only became number one in the world after one of his comebacks, you know, after sort of dealing with his past. So I'd like to think it's possible in some sort of way.
0: But he's more lovable for exactly, that reason.
2: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I, I, would...
0: Jordan didn't have the chinks in the armor that, you know, there was no space for identification
2: because he was so otherworldly. Yeah. I'd much rather sit and, down and no one wants to hear... Andre Agassi than Michael Jordan. My God. We,
0: yeah, we want to hear Charles Barkley, you know, uh, talk about basketball. But we don't really want to hear Michael Jordan do it because no, uh, he, he's too good. Or
1: well, and, and he's too he's too good, but also like it, I mean, I think RJ, what you're pointing to is this idea that people, and it is, it gives me great empathy for him. People who are who are gifted in this way, and for so many people who are gifted in the way that he's gifted, something dark has pushed them yes. there, right? Yes and we use them, and we love them, and we adore them, and then we don't, and then they're still left with that darkness, right? They're still left with that. And so it makes all the sense in the world to me that he would sit in a chair, as he does in this documentary, with a a glass of whiskey and a cigar, and like, talk smack. <laughs> you know what I mean <laughs> about people who helped him along the way that he probably shouldn't be I mean cuz he's still he's still in that pain and he doesn't have any there's no Processing it with us, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we yeah. we
0: we used him, is what is what the uh, yeah,
1: it's it's pretty tragic. He actually. was consumed,
0: and they do talk about how he was basically chasing his father's approval, you know, surprise, yeah. surprise. Uh, but uh, we 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 use Michael Jordan, just give and when, your
1: approval, dad. Do they
0: talk about how his give dad was murdered? Your approval, do they talk about how his dad they, was murdered. I haven't gotten to that, that section yet, but you know, they also, Man. um. This, 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 the burden of perfection, or the, even the, the, it's even, even when it's achieved, it becomes such a terrible, uh, oh, yeah. you know, albatross. Like they, I remember, never forget the interview with uh, Mark Spitz, mm-hmm. the swimmer, you know, who won, who, seven gold Phelps, medals in uh, Munich. Finally beat his record of the most Olympic medals ever. And they interviewed his son, and his son just be, like, you know, be trying to do, uh, just get in shape and do push ups, and his dad would come in and like, do 50 more push-ups than he, and he just oh. like he just walk out of the room and be like, I hate, oh. I hate you, Dad. And his dad would just be <laughs> like, Well, what do I? What do I do? I don't know. I, if i if I encourage him, it's not going to be good because I'm going to be perfection just as an accusation over this kid. And yet, remember when Mark Spitz tried to make a comeback because he didn't know who he was if he wasn't the championship swimmer, that was a really sad moment in sports history. I think someone should do a documentary about failed comebacks, uh, yes. like when Bjorn Borg tried to come back, or th- these these things happen. And what do you do with a person? Who are you? And in fact, that's kind of leads into our next article, which is this brilliant essay for Wired Magazine by Lori Penny called Productivity is Not Working. Now, this will touch on some themes we've talked about quite a bit, and it's certainly right in line with uh, the seculosity uh, chapter on uh, the cult of productivity. Um, but this is what Lori Penny wrote, and she's writing from the perspective of a millennial. She says the drive to stay productive, and this is what she's talking about within quarantine, is about so much more than making rent. It is a moral discipline. When I check in with my friends and family far away, I usually get an update on how productive they have or have not managed to be since last we spoke. Productivity is not a synonym for health or for safety or for sanity. But as a precarious millennial who for the past 10 years has answered every cautious inquiry about my well-being with a rundown of how much work I got done that day, I do understand the confusion. Frantic productivity is a fear response. No matter how many marches I go to, because she talks about being sort of an activist, she says, There is some part of me that believes that if I can only self-optimize a bit harder, then the world will right itself. No one I love will suffer and death will have no dominion. So when the coronavirus crisis began, I started writing myself ambitious to-do lists on giant sticky notes, because when every cultural certainty starts collapsing in my hands like wet cake, writing ambitious to-do lists is how I calm down. There's always been something a little obscene about the cult of the hustle, the treadmill of alienated insecurity that tells you if you stop running for even an instant, you'll be flung flat on your face but the treadmill is familiar. The treadmill feels normal. And right now, when the world economy has jerked to a sudden shuddering stop, most of us are desperate to feel normal. And yet the idea that hustling can save you from calamity is an article of faith, not fact. And the COVID-19 pandemic is starting to shake the collective faith in individual striving. The cult of productivity doesn't have an answer for this crisis. Self-optimizing will not save us this time, although saying so feels surprisingly blasphemous. This isn't happening because you didn't work hard enough and it won't be fixed by optimizing your morning routines and adopting a can-do attitude.
1: We should have her speak next year.
0: Seriously. It's a brilliant <laughs> essay. Yeah. And it's it doesn't, of course, it doesn't give any kind of solution, but it does right. say that what she's experienced Diagnosis is that this problem. Is a religious phenomenon, though, an article of faith. Right. That productivity is where we've placed our is, is our our our, our enoughness our identity our, our hope for salvation an idea that we can fix everything if we just hustle hard enough and feeling t- deeply betrayed by that in the midst of this um, and the insufficiency of it which is always probably uh, I doubt that she would she, she would have if you'd woken uh, this person up in the middle of the night or any of us who are uh, such workaholics or workists would we say oh yeah this is the most important thing to me or, or I don't I, I I believe that this can actually deliver what I th- think it will. And yet it's still, um, it sometimes takes the pandemic uh, or everything grinding to halt to realize just just how much we believe it, even though we know we shouldn't.
2: Um, where did this lead you guys? Well, to go back to what I said before, I think the lack of routine, one of the hardest things about the lack of routine is it doesn't give me, it doesn't give my workest self much to hang its hat on. You know, that at least when I have a routine, I know that like, okay, I got up this morning, I got the kids to school. I was to the office before eight. I, I worked my eight, nine, 10 hours. I went home. Maybe I got a lot accomplished. Even if I didn't get as much accomplished as I wanted to, I can go back and do it again tomorrow, you know, and sort of make up for that. Uh, but now that's just sort of all out the window, you know, that, that there's this weird combination, you know, I'm working, my wife is working. And as she points out in this uh, was it this article, or another one? Like taking care of the kids is also working. You know, cooking is also working. Cleaning is always working. So it feels like I'm constantly working, and yet there's no sense of self justification. It doesn't satisfy that part of myself that needs somebody to hang its uh, to hang its hat on. And just, and even it did strike me, um, even in better times, what percentage of my time am I either working or thinking about working or trying not to think about working so that I can ha- be rested and then get back to working? <laughs> you know, just how much <laughs> either doing or thinking about it defines my existence. Um, and, you know, I'm not an introvert, I'm an extrovert. And I do, I'm kind of addicted to newness and to distraction. And in this moment when there's so little newness and so little distraction, um, you know, again, we've said it before, what did Blaise Pascal say? That all the problems in the world can be traced to our inability to sit quietly in a room alone. I'm not good at sitting quietly in a room alone. Even if I was, my my three-year-old wouldn't let me. Um, but yeah, there was, there was a lot that rung bells here and... Maybe this will go on long enough that we'll get better at this, but I'm not optimistic. You know, I think we're just sort of waiting for it to time out, and then we'll go back to what we were doing before. But maybe not. Sarah, you said you, you said before we got on that you're re- you're rethinking everything. <laughs> you're re. What does that mean?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I say this hesitantly because um, I, a I, the last thing I want to do is make women feel bad, um, and be I you know there's it's a complicated thing to sort of talk about motherhood in 2020 but I felt really lucky to be a mom right now um and to have a job that I am still doing but is not I mean god I have friends that are lawyers and doctors and I mean you know like I don't have that job um I check in on the mental health of my students uh, individually, and I check in on them twice a week for prayers and community. And that's kind of it right now, to be honest with you. So it doesn't take up a tremendous amount of my time. And so what that looks like is that I really am focused right now on being a mom and being a wife in a way that was really hard three weeks ago. And now I was talking to a friend of mine, um, who always sort of dances with Christianity, um, who listens to this show. And I was telling him this, I was like, I can't, I love that I'm calling this a show by the way now, like we're on a show. Um, but he, that's cause I watched too much Real Housewives. Uh, but he, he was saying, I was saying like, I'm, I'm like at peace with it now. Like it actually, yes, it, the cooking, I mean, I'm, it's three meals a day. It's laundry. It's, I make my bed because I it like gives me some sense of a win. Um, so it's all kind of all these things, but they're tangible and they're done. And I'm and I'm like relaxing into that. And he said, Oh, that's called submission, hmm. which is also a really complicated word in this category, but it and I think he kind of meant it as a joke, but it's a very Christian word. Hmm. And not a word we talk about a lot, but I was like, is that – maybe that is actually what's happening is like I've kind of submitted to – this role and and this specific thing that i am called into right this moment knowing that this isn't always what I'm called into but it is right now and that's I found a lot I don't know I mean I feel like such an ass for saying this because I know other people haven't but I have found a lot of peace in that Mm -hmm. it has given me great comfort to know that those are my main tasks and if I take care of those then I've taken care of something um but again, I have friends that are lawyers that are like literally on the phone on Zoom calls for like 10 hours a day and also doing all this mom stuff. And that is brutal. So I don't know. Mm. Um, I, I, I feel for this writer because she doesn't. She has roommates. I mean, I also think there's a complication of like when the only person we have to care for is ourselves if we have created work as our whole identity and suddenly that becomes demoted, it's like, how do we, I don't know. Some of my healthiest friends have been the ones who've like gone out and bought a ton of plants right before this happened. Right. Cause they had something beyond themselves to care about. Um, yeah. I don't know.
0: That's I mean, I think uh, one person's submission is another person's surrender. And, yeah. uh, that's part of what you're describing as well. Because there has been moments, you know, I, I have not, my work life has, has been reduced drastically and I keep having to, you know, say no to things that I'd like to say yes to just because I can barely honor my existing commitments.
1: Absolutely.
0: And that's a really, that's that's logistical Tough problem, but it's really what it really is is a psycho spiritual problem Mm -hmm. that I'm kind of confronted with my own limitations, and then but then there are these times where I'm getting this time with my with my sons, you know, so that maybe maybe by the grace of God they won't turn out to be a Michael Jordan chasing their father's (laughs) approval (laughs) into basically hell. That's because that's where it kind of all ends. Um, I did laugh at the Onion this past week. Lampooned this uh, with the article, man not sure why he thought most psychologically taxing situation of his life would be the thing to make him productive. <laughs> And, and they, it, they the, But the better part is the actual article said, Despite my high hopes The most devastating crisis of my life Hasn't turned out to be the catalyst I needed To meet all of my long-held personal goals mm. Says Mr. Ayers Who added that he had no idea what he was thinking When he told himself that being furloughed from his job And enduring a sustained period of emotional isolation Would be just what he needed To start eating better Acquaint himself with world cinema And get a jump start on the novel he had always wanted to write At press time He had reportedly decided that going forward, he would instead focus all his time and attention on feeling guilty about his lack of productivity rather than trying (laughs) to be productive itself. Um.
1: It's brutal. I mean, I do think there, you know, people initially, I mean, she's. I love her honesty here, really did have this, like, list of all the things that they would accomplish. And um, it's... Some of it is get, you know, some of it eventually is getting done. And then I think it's becoming clarifying for what we actually want to do. Um, yeah. Which is really, you know, like I don't want to go through the closet with all the pillows and Christmas decorations in it, but I'm definitely going to paint our kitchen table. You know what I mean? <laughs> Sorry,
0: I've Josh. been going through all my uh, childhood things as I, as kind of my therapy, why way of regression. And, um, that has reminded me of all of these things that I used to think were so important, like Michael Jordan, like uh, yeah. Im- image comics, and um, how little that I think about them now. It's been a massive perspective check. But, you know, one of the things, that it leads Lori a Penny in this state of failure, which every, especially all workaholics, workists, even parents just to a great extent too. Uh, one of the great refrains I'm hearing is just how insane trying to homeschool your children is as well as have a job and how that
1: oh yeah or
0: not only homeschool not only be their teacher but be their you know cafeteria person there
1: well and when we say teacher i mean i think that's the thing that's hitting me like we actually mean teach them new concepts like my third grader today was like i'm not good at geometry and i was like no boo boo you're great at geometry. You just have me trying to teach you about geometry. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's like, I'm not equipped to do this. So yeah, sorry to interrupt. I just, I I think that is the thing I've been like, Oh my God, I'm teaching you new concepts. No, no, no. I'm not capable of that.
2: (laughs) I'm glad. I don't know. I'm glad. I'm so glad, Sarah, that you have sort of submitted to your current role and and Dave that you've I don't know, been able to say no to things. I guess listening to you guys I just realized my our life is not it doesn't work if our kids aren't in school. It just doesn't, mm. you know, and it's been it's been hard and trying and and maybe that means saying no to more things or um I mean, we're also about to. We're supposed to like move houses in a month, <laughs> you know. Oh, RJ. <laughs> and it's, we, a lot. its a lot. It's a lot. We were realizing my my wife came to me the other day. She's like, "I've been thinking about it and realized that between our kids and your job and all sorts of stuff, we filled out like fifty different applications this year." Part of us is just fantasizing about next fall when we're not applying to schools and we're settled and sure. removed and we're and hopefully yeah. beyond this. And but to all those people out there who are feeling, and I'm sure a lot that are feeling, like their their life doesn't just doesn't work. Right now, I'm totally, mm-hmm. I'm with you.
0: Well, you know, the faithless attitude is to think that, is to say what God intends as a comma, we think of as a period. Mm. And, yes, and that the attitude of faith is to say that, uh, is to to mention that even if something looks like a period, it may in fact be a comma because mm-hmm. I don't have all the facts. The story isn't finished writing, and the truth is, what feels like the end in a lot of these deaths and surrenders and things like that that we're going through, I think that there, this is probably a big comma that we're going to look back on. And I wonder what sort of, uh, you know, what the second part of the clause is going to be. Or at least that's what faithful experience tells me, um, even if I don't believe it in my heart right this moment.
1: Um, Well, it's like, I love to look at historical photographs because I just sit there and stare at those people and I think well, they made it and they get to die. You know what I mean? They get to be dead now. And there's some relief in that for me. I mean, I really, you know, like I love, I mean, I've always been fascinated by World War II. And I mean, I've read a ton about this stuff. It's probably why I like my stupid princess books right now. You know what I mean? I'm like, well, dang, they made it. You know what I mean? Rom- <laughs> Romanovston. But, um, but that, and, and, you know, I can make it through this. I don't know. There is that. There is something about that. I love that idea of, of a comma and not a period because I think we live, so many of us live in this pretty unfaithful place, which is understandable. But, I mean, God, when this happened, I was like, this is it. I mean, y'all know. I was like, we're all going to have to go underground. I'm going to get one of them <laughs> I'm outfits digging a ditch from The in Handmaid's the backyard. tail. You know, my kid's not going to learn geometry because I'm going to be his teacher for the rest of his life. You know, it's like. The church it, it, is it, over. The church is over, you know. Um, So it's, yeah, I mean, there's something really important about that. Well, let's talk
0: about failure a little bit, because it it was one of the remarkable article appeared in Marginalia this week, written by Thomas Millay, uh, reviewing... Sylvia Walsh's new book about Kierkegaard. Now, if that makes you roll your eyes and run for the exits, just listen to what he has to say, because she's written a book, uh, Sylvia Walsh is one of the great world experts on Kierkegaard, she's written a book called Kierkegaard and Religion, and uh, it's a mammoth pushback against the idea that considering uh, uh, Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher, to have been a virtue ethicist. Now, again, bear with me. The tradition of virtue ethics, this is Millais writing, presumes that one can at least to some extent realize virtues in one's earthly life. To speak of a traditional practice of courage is to believe that courage can actually be practiced by human beings. Virtue ethics thus presupposes that individuals and communities can be virtuous. It is precisely this presupposition with which Kierkegaard disagrees, according to Walsh, and she is certainly right about that. The character of Christian life, according to Kierkegaard, does not have to do with an increasing realization of virtue. It is a mistake in his mind to identify Christian living with greater perfection in courage, apathia, or magnanimity. Instead, Christian life is most fundamentally about pursuit of virtue, yet knowing one has failed. The basic fact of our inevitable failure should cause Christians to reconsider the viability of virtue ethics. If an ethics of virtue necessarily presumes virtue can be realized, perhaps the whole premise is flawed. Perhaps Kierkegaard would like to be a virtue ethicist, but things being as there are, he finds he cannot take such a position. Instead, he begins with failure. Take faith, for example. In faith, the self takes on form and shape as it learns to trust in the eternal, accepting all temporal events as good and perfect gifts given to build up the individual in her God relation. Yet this progress in becoming a self is matched each step of the way by a greater realization of just how paltry one's faith is and how little one trusts God. In addition, any progress that can be recognized by the self is quickly transformed into a jest. How so? Well, any actual progress in faith that we do make is not in actuality our own, but is God acting in us. It is only God's tolerant beneficence that allows us to think we are doing good. We are like the child who thinks she is pushing the stroller, when really it is her mother who is doing all the work, allowing the child to hold on to her pleasing illusion since it works to build up her confidence. Ultimately, the destiny of the true Christian is to realize, in responsible maturity, her utter dependence— All along, whenever any genuine good has occurred, that good has been of God, not of her own making. The life of a responsible Christian thus culminates, logically enough, in the altar, a space wherein faith is identical to gratitude. So if Kierkegaard is a character ethicist, he is a peculiar one at that. The human self-developed character only in this inverse way, where our moments of complete incapacity and utter depredation— are simultaneously our greatest triumph. To be a human being, then, is to be a glorious failure.
1: Oh, I love this. It's <laughs> really good. Um, I just, I, 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 I don't know a lot about Kierkegaard. I should. I feel like I need to admit that, honestly. I feel like you boys probably do, but I don't. And um, maybe they assigned him in seminary, and I didn't do any of the reading then. So. um I I do, but I, I do want to say I think this is such an important message for us to to hear again and and to hear through him. because um, I certainly know a lot of people are very into Kierkegaard. Um because either God takes care of us or or God doesn't, right? Either God is in charge or God is not. And that's a really hard thing for us to hear, especially right now in the midst of a pandemic. Like, where the hell is God? Um but I mean, we said this before, but it's like the line I always think of and I always use in pastoral care. Day that your dad says is like, you know, you can get mad at God because he's the only one who can do anything about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um But I think this is this is such a necessary and sort of unheard message in the church that if anything good happens, um, if I do anything good, then it is of God. And I I need that message because so much of me is desperate desperate for people to come to me in 20 years and say, Sarah, we would love to give you a glass of whiskey and a cigar and just sit you down on a chair and just have you complain about everybody who's done you (laughs) wrong. Please use four letter words. Um, and I would be like, yeah, absolutely. I'll pay you to produce this. Um, and so I know that that part of me is very real and, so I it makes all the sense in the world to me that when goodness comes into my life and when I do good things that it's that it's the work of, of the Lord. I I love the image of the stroller because we're taking all these walks as a family and there's this mother who regularly and it is a small child. I mean the it's a, it's like a 1-year-old. She will hold the 1-year-old and the 1-year-old will push the stroller, the empty stroller. Mm-hmm. And and i'm i always like i just i see her pretty regularly doing this with this baby who's totally delighted to feel like he is pushing the stroller um i and i think it's a it's a beautiful image of god and god's love for us and god's care for us so i don't know i just i think this is amazing
2: yeah i'm just i struck again by how addicted we are to the idea of improvement um ethical action that we can be more and better and then that's that's the 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 human project. That's the Christian project. I think I've shared the story before of a friend of mine, good friend who's not a Christian, but he and I have spiritual conversations from time to time. He's a super smart guy. And he was on a artificial intelligence kick at one point. He's like, you know, RJ, guys in your line of work are going to be really important because we're going to, we're going to need someone to teach these robots how to be good. And I was like, oh, Mm. Paul, I'm not in I'm not in the making good business. I'm in the forgiveness business, you know? And then actually right. we were able to have a really good um conversation about that. But um yeah, that we're not here to make people good because it's not something that can can be done. It's not an attainable goal. And and what she says about um failure, that if there is a cardinal Christian virtue, I think it might be humility. You know, I think about Romans, you know, whenever someone wants to talk about Christian ethics, they're like, well, Romans chapter 12, you know, um, the beginning, uh, do not conform anymore to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And they they think what that means is just be better, but then Paul immediately says um, for by the grace given to me, I, I say, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but with sober judgment according to the measure of faith that God has given you. So to him, the transformation of our minds is not about morality, it's about humility. It's about b- being transformed such that we see ourselves as we actually are and don't pretend to be something um, that we're not. And and then, you know, what 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 you might call ethics, which... Paul's ethics or you know, Sarah and I are in this Facebook conversation a little bit about ethics. A little bit. And you a little, we sort of dipped our toe in. Um yeah. I just post me. When Christians start talking about ethics, man, you it gets it gets thorny. It gets it difficult. Gets
1: murky, folks. It
2: does, because Paul yeah. is hit. Paul's ethics, you know. I'm um, let each one be fully convinced in their own minds. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. You know, some esteem one day is better than another. Some do not. Like eat if meat if you want, don't if you don't, but stop judging each other. That his right. whole approach to ethics is so counter to everything we think it is. Um, and uh, and and more often when he, again, when he talks about things that he hasn't done right or achieved, you know, that he's blameless according to the law and zealous and a Pharisee among Pharisees. And then he says, but I count it all, you know, rubbish. And it's actually a four letter mm-hmm. word. Um, compared to the all surpassing greatness of being of, of being known by Jesus Christ. That none none of that matters. It doesn't matter. All that matters is being known, loved, held by God. Um so I, this I can't believe this was in the L.A. Review of Books. Is that right, well, Dave? <laughs> kind of?
0: they sort of it's like the kind of faith esque part of uh, the L.A. Review of Books. It's, uh, um, but it's a great article because you know a lot of times, uh, especially in Christian circles, when you hear there, it was it feels a little passe right now, but uh, especially you know five ten years ago there was a big boom and people wanted to talk about virtue instead of. Instead of morality, basically, they, mm. it was a, it was a, in virtue when you, people's like, oh, I don't really want to talk about, you know, moral perfection. I just want to talk about cultivating virtue. Mm. And that usually was always a code name for
1: the law. It yes, was, of course. Uh, it was always a code name for the law. And it, it was. I just always feel like you're going to make me put on more clothes too. But anyway, keep going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, right, exactly. And, um. <laughs> And there was a lot of books that came out, and like, well, how can we cultivate virtue and virtuous communities and virtuous. You know, countries and states and churches and all this stuff, and basically, it's like, how can we get people to behave. obey the law and yeah. behave, or yeah. to become more like how we want them to be? And what yeah. Kierkegaard is saying is that there is such a thing as a virtue of magnanimity. There is such a thing, at least what Walsh is saying, Kierkegaard is saying, is that there is such a thing as chastity and faith and it, all, tolerance. These things are real Christian virtues. And yet, uh, how do you they, you become these things? Well, it is your own. It, you you basically experience failure in the attempt, and then you experience God's grace, uh, and gratitude is what he she, she talks about uh, here, that fa- really faith is the, the gratitude you experience when you fail to be faithful.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think when we say to people, like, I wish people would just be more virtuous, I think or I wish I could just be more virtuous. There, I think there's a real slippery slope to just saying like I wish I I wish I needed Jesus less.
0: Yeah, I wish every I wish Christianity was basically about becoming a moral athlete, becoming a Michael yeah. Jordan
2: of the of of yeah. like. A,
0: and that's one yeah. of the reasons why because the people of resent, like
2: that are my favorite people. Those are. My <laughs> 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 well, the fruit of him,
0: you know, you, Paul, Saint Paul is basically saying I was the Michael Jordan of my. Yes, he of was. My was. was. You yes. know. And yes. yet, uh, I realized that it was producing nothing but absolute disdain for other people. And literally and yeah. literally killing them. Literally killing them. And
1: literally killing them. Literally, in
0: his case, literally killing them. In which, other people's case, just wanting to assassinate their character on on. Us. Which,
1: Michael, yeah, Michael Jordan would full-on still kill people. If he, he would. Could. If you if you he know what I mean? Like, if it were back would. in the yes. days, yes. like, absolutely yeah. would. Yeah. Like... I would, too. I want to seek out this book,
0: and I also want to seek out the writers behind the article. Um, Let's end with a couple of things that have appeared on Mockingbird. These are both, they kind of work in tandem, and they're both about this productivity, virtue, striving, and failure, the experience of it. The first is by Sarah Denley Harrington who wrote something called The Freedom to Do Nothing and uh, says that she's a stay-at-home mom and has had a really hard time, though, not constantly thinking about time work uh, and the cult of efficiency, and more often than not, realizing that she's tying her personal worth in conscious and unconscious ways to what she's doing and her accomplishments. She says something great about online church in relation to this. She says, I realized almost immediately when we began streaming church That for the first time, I could monitor how much longer church would last. (laughs) I felt an odd sense of control and also an incredible sense of guilt. I told myself that a large part of operating on countdown mode was my anxious personality and my unruly children who, unsurprisingly, seem to behave less well in the comfort of their own home, watching a screen than in the confines of a pew where some amount of decorum is expected.
1: Same girl.
0: <laughs> I also reminded myself that it wasn't specific to a worship service. I often find myself fixated on how many episodes are left in a season of a television show, how many pages are left in a chapter of a novel. I'm unquestionably an erotic person living in erotic age. So she's confessing to basically failure uh, to think about, to reconceive of her, this new normal in the right way, especially as it relates to church. And I think a lot of us can, uh, can relate to that. Now, I want to shift and we'll come back to Sarah uh, Denley Harrington. But then Lydia Sewitt today on our wrote something about quarantine side effects, the mini existential crises from staying at home. She says, we are all experiencing different changes in routine and different objects of loss. And while some of those losses are sound small, they are having a significant impact on us. My small losses have led me to become increasingly restless, so I feel compelled to set goals. Health goals, reading goals, creative goals. I have also noticed an increase in negative thoughts. For me, whether at work, at home, in my relationships, or spiritually, these anxieties tend to center on the question, am I doing enough? I think the impact of these small losses is magnified because they signify another deeper loss, the loss of our identities and of several sources of meaning. The external losses have revealed how much of our meaning and purpose is rooted in things like completing projects at work, emotionally supporting our friends, financially supporting our families, exploring new opportunities, and serving at our own churches and elsewhere. When we can't do some of these things or can't do them at the level we previously could, we start to question whether who we are and whether we matter. Back to Sarah Denley Harrington. She said that her pastor reminded her of another fabulous truth on Easter Sunday. She said, in Christ's resurrection, we experience liberation from saving ourselves and from the liberation from praising ourselves. But man, do I find myself going back to those chains. I need a daily, hourly reminder that my worth is not found in a failed or unattempted house project, and that I also need the reminder that my worth is not found in a successful one. Suet responds almost in kind by saying, We may discover in the midst of this failure that we're still someone when all these other things go away because we were someone before any of them began. God's love and our meaning does not depend on our achievements or lack thereof. It depends on God's promise and has been secured since God spoke his word of love into the world, world, a word that is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I found that these two voices kind of in conjunction are, are, are almost a, an object lesson in this Kierkegaardian sense, and that the failure, the losses that we experience, and the failure to to do enough, to be enough, to know who we are without these traditional avenues of meaning and accomplishment, that this is ushering in something like faith in uh, both of these voices, and both of these women who written for Mockingbird, and I find it to be deeply a very beautiful fruit, it's being born, that we're actually seeing, you see born on the page, and if you're a person who identifies with what they're writing about, which I do on a very profound level, well then, that little gift of faith is almost being transferred to you. Um, these are not, we are not experiencing Michael Je- Michael Jordan-like perfection in the midst of quarantine. We are experiencing a failure to even redeem quarantine, or even to understand that we have the freedom to do nothing. And out of that comes all of this blessing and this assurance that God is enough, and um, that's where my mind went. What, what did you guys think about these, these kind of punctuations here?
1: I'm, I'm friends with Sarah Denley. Um, and she and I both, uh, have talked about struggling with anxiety. And so I love reading anything she writes. Um, I I and I've kind of thought of this the whole episode. I feel like we're vi- we're actually married to pretty similar guys, like they're kind of guys that just steady the ship. And um and my husband has said so many times to me over the past couple weeks like God's going to take care of us. And um I I need I need to hear that kind of constantly right now because um because it does feel like everything's up in the air. It does feel really tenuous. Um also, church is really hard. I love that Sarah talked about that. Like, church, like the video church thing is, like, it just sucks. And if you've got kids, you cannot get them to sit still. They're not going to sit through it. Um, I, we, we do virtual Sunday school. So they have Sunday school before church. And there is this, like, weight of the law that's ever present for me, but I always try to, like, ignore, which is, like, these are the priest kids, you know. And we're always late and they always get in a fight on On the Zoom, and um, and this past week, you know, we have this other priest at our church, Corey Wright, and he is like the sweetest family. They're just they're just like the nicest, most faithful people. They really are, and um, and their son, uh, Grayson, is just a brilliant little boy, and he's so faithful, and um, and he's just better than our kids. And um, on Sunday, on, like during the Sunday school, Grayson literally explained the Trinity. Like he was like explaining, he's in first grade, he's like explaining the Trinity as my children are kicking each other off of the chair that they're sharing. And I just felt like it's, you know, wheels are off the wagon in such a real way. And, and I mean, I'm finding relief in this conversation that these two women are having that, that, you know, our identity is having to shift. Things are having to fall away that we felt like we were keeping up the ruse on. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I mean, I've seen in my own house this really beautiful thing where my husband on Tuesday nights, um, watches he you know he he loves the band fish and he's you know he tried to get me into it it's never been my thing and every Tuesday night fish does this thing dinner in a movie where they like give you recipes and they play like an incredible live show and like he is like finding comfort in that you know and and that I've as his wife been like this is a thing that like still speaks to him and is a part of who he is and so, when all these other things have kind of fallen away, you know, and like that's
2: still there. Sarah, I totally feel you with the uh, Sunday school thing. We've been doing that too, but um, my son actually hasn't been awake early enough to go to it. I'm certainly not waking him <laughs> up to go to Sunday school. So, this past week, right. uh, he was actually awake. And so, I logged on and got on with him, and he immediately just started hitting me, <laughs> you know, like yeah. on Zoom. And I was like, okay, guys, bye. I don't think Marshall's in bye. the mood for this later. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it is true, church is so much harder to do this way than to do live. You know, I'm I'm recording and editing and and all this sort of stuff. But that being said, I will say, I've been really thankful for church just personally, because a it reminds me like what day of the week it is, yeah. and 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 b you can justifiably ignore your kids to go to church. You know. <laughs> yes, maybe that's it, RJ.
0: Maybe that's it. I can feel like I'm really getting something done and doing It's like right me with thing. cooking. It's like, don't bother
2: me, honey. I'm cooking. Okay. You, you manage a three year old. I'm serving our there. family right now. Okay. So
1: they're always there.
0: <laughs> well, I think that's all we got for this week. I th- um, maybe we'll go uh, watch some more of The Last Dance. And um, I'm going to watch Mansfield Park. And uh, yeah, that's all I got. Thank you guys. Bye. 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 Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.mbird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at mbird.com. Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by the Narrativo Group. And if you like what you've heard, please do drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Until next time. Praise
1: the Lord.